You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. My name is John Jacob and this is episode 128. If you're new to the podcast series or you're pondering whether you'll bother to listen to the end of this episode, then maybe this endorsement from violinist Francisco Falana will help you make up your mind. I really appreciate your questions. Like, it's, you know, when you do interviews or, you know, that kind of situation where a lot of the questions are very similar and uh, you actually, I feel like I would say 80% of the questions you asked me, I had to really come up with an answer on the spot and like really kind of try to put my thoughts together. So I'm really fascinated, really I'm, I'm really fascinated by the 20% that you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting for a moment that the strength of the questioning in this interview should keep you hooked in. If anything, the real focus should be on Francisco's musicianship and his energy, his ridiculous and utterly joyful energy. It is a must-listen. The album, it's called Bach's Long Shadow, released by Orchid Classics, including music for solo violin by Bach, Isai and Albanith. First things first, what can Francisco see outside of his nearest window? And here's a pro background tip. He's in California. We live in this kind of complex where all the faculty live. And so this is actually called a community room, which you know nobody really uses. So I get to practice in here, which is nice. And it's just the, the pool is over there. And then right over there is the, the grass, the big lawn, the central lawn. Wow. You, you, you live, work, and relax uh, all in the same yeah, place. The same and you, and you I, live in a place that has a pool. I mean, I just don't understand I could, that. I could ju- it's just a community pool. But, you know, I could literally just drop my violin and just jump in the pool within 10 seconds. Yeah, it's a world away from southeast London where it's slightly overcast and there's no room for a pool and nobody would have a pool <laughs> in the back garden because I lived in New be- York for 14 years, so I understand very well the the cramped and the you know the small apartment situation. Uh, what took you to where you are now? Oh, my partner, she's a professor at Stanford, she's a biochemist. So I came out here for a concert about three and a half years ago. Um, the concert we met, you know, and somehow I ended up, you know, spending now my whole pandemic around here and still, you know, still like it. <laughs> so. It's not, not a bad person to be attached to during a pandemic. Yes, no, it's been, you know, it's, it's just a really nice place to live. And we've been, uh, it's really nicely informed, uh, I got to say. Uh, she's actually, you know, she has been working on, you know, some, you know, most of her work is uh, basic science, but she's also kind of branched out a little bit into COVID tests and developing a new test and things like that. So, Great. Yeah. She's a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> I strongly recommend that you stay together. Um, do, you, do you find yourself, both of you, talking about music a lot? Do you connect yes. over music? Yeah, I mean, we've, uh, you know, we've been, uh, she's a huge music lover. And uh, I, you know, of course, I miss some of my musician friends to kind of get into the more nerdy details, to use your words. But uh, I, overall, it is very nice, actually, to have a non-musician perspective about about pieces, about uh, how music kind of is received. And so what actually I do a lot is uh, run through before a concert, you know, especially before the pandemic, I, we will have the small gatherings of our 
colleagues and be able to run through pieces uh, at home and kind of yeah explore that performance side on a on an audience that you know it's a lot of the people that actually come to the concerts so what sort of insights is she providing you with yeah. what, what how do you how do you benefit from her feedback hmm. um I, I i would say i mean i think there's a certain um, she's definitely pushed me in a very authentic sincere kind of allowing me to be more vulnerable i mean obviously i think the pandemic has done that a lot you know to a lot of us as musicians but she's definitely helped with that process where uh, actually I feel like it, it translates on stage and on recording and all that uh, where I can, you know, I, I really prioritize now even more that idea of just dropping every kind of preconception and judgment that you have about yourself and, and just try to lay it out all out there because then it's much more effective. It sounds as though you're having to sort of, or that you strive to, disassociate yourself before performance can you can you tell me more about the process sure um so yeah it, it's you know with with between like the process of learning a piece right like when you're starting in the practice room all the way to actually performing it in front of a big audience uh, it's a very i would say it's a very unique process where where you're working so hard on all these details, you're you're really trying to you know get to know you know you start you study the chord progression. So you you start you know for example in Bach you start working on the ornamentation and uh, there's all these really small details that uh, in a way um, you need to really pay attention and then zoom out as you step away. And so once you get on to the stage level of when you're actually performing. Uh, there's got to be this process of dropping those, all those things that you've kind of worked on and, you know, they still stay there, but you stop thinking about them and you start really just focusing on how you're reacting to the piece and how you are almost connecting that piece to the audience. So it's, it's a very, I, I, I feel like these run-throughs that I do before big concerts are very helpful for that because it's, if you're just stepping on a big stage playing a piece, you know, can share them maybe for the first time or that you haven't played since you were a kid, um, there's a bit of all these preconceptions and all these um, limits that you put yourself and that you have to shed as you're performing. So the more you do it before the actual concert, the closer you get to the end result. What do you have to do afterwards then? If that's what you're doing in preparation, what do you do? Do you, do you just, how do you deal with the aftermath? After performing, you mean? Yeah. Oh, well, that's, you know, it's so funny you asked that because I always say that there's no, there's no drug or anything that will, that feels like uh, the way you feel after a good concert. I mean, really, uh, there's this kind of excitement, adrenaline, whatever it is, that it, you almost like you chase it. Like you're, you know, when you're performing, you, you want to play really well and you want to be in a certain mindset that's actually very calm and very focused. So then when you're done playing, it's almost like a burst of energy. And so it, make, it makes it really hard to sleep <laughs> after a concert. It's always I and, uh, you know, as I've, you know, for the past year and a half, the few concerts that I've had, that idea of, you know, that you're playing a concert, maybe you're masked or you're doing a live stream of some sort. And then if you're playing with other musicians, the idea of not being able to go to dinner or to go, you know, get, get a drink, it's very strange and it really affects that kind of like you have all this energy and okay i'm just going back to the hotel now i'm going back home <laughs> it's like it's a bit of a letdown did you get 
did you get any kind of that buzz from digital experiences at all? Um, I think it, it varied. Uh, I feel if I was traveling to a place and I, you know, I, where they would kind of host me and, you know, you, they actually do the recording in a big hall and you still have, you know, the concert organizer, maybe a small amount of audience that are they invited, uh, then you still get that. If I'm just like recording from home or uh, from like a local place where I just head home right after, um, it, it's not, it doesn't feel the same. You really try to put yourself in that mindset but that aftermath is definitely much milder. It's just much more subdued. Does that mean that you need to prepare in a different way? Uh, yeah, I mean, you feel like you you have to almost uh, like you almost feel like you have to overdo it in a way. Like you have to just what you're chasing. I guess what I was talking about earlier. It's it's a little bit different, and you have to really focus on 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 connecting with other people in a, in a different way. So what I did a lot through this pandemic was actually trying to understand, it kind of made me look inwards in terms of the music itself and the composer itself. So instead of being focused on this kind of connection with the audience and this energy that we get when you know, you're know you playing in front of a thousand people, um, you have to just look back to the composer and be like, to really get to know him and to to really get to kind of embrace his personality or or the what he's trying to convey in some way and you know with these composers that have been you know, dead for a long time that you know and a lot of them you know someone like Bach you still have a lot of information and biographies but you know someone like Vivaldi for example um it's very hard to do that you, it takes actually a lot of uh, work and research and reading to kind of really get a better picture of who they were when do you know when you when do you know you've got the picture sufficient that you can you know commit especially for for something like bach which is just so like i i don't know why any instrumentalist would even attempt bach really because it's like there's so much there's so much baggage <laughs> it's true yeah i mean um I feel I think it's a process, you know, it's a journey. I mean, that's a that's a big thing with playing Bach as a you know playing solo Bach as a violinist. Um, you know, if you start, you learn these pieces when when you're a teenager or even before. I mean, something like Bach Chaconne, I played for. I started learning it when I was maybe 12, 13, and I have recordings of myself, you know, from back then, and it's very different. <laughs> than now i'm probably you know, i'm 30 now probably when i'm in my 50s or 60s it'll also sound very different so you have to accept that and understand that it's always going to be an ongoing process that changes uh, over time but uh, you also have to enjoy the moment and be be aware of the kind of mindset and the way that you're approaching the piece and when that's... you look at when you look at those performances, I mean, I know when I listen to podcasts that I recorded ten years ago, I listen to sure. them. Oh my god, that sounds awful. <laughs> yep. Uh, if only I'd scripted that. And did I really yeah. need to crack that joke? That wasn't funny. Um, do you? When? What is your experience of listening to yourself when you were younger? Uh, it's um, it's, it's actually interesting. I feel like if you if I listen to myself like maybe the eighteen to twenty five uh, <laughs> range. In terms, especially with something like Bach, it was just so different than how I see it now. And uh, I, you know, it was very academic maybe and very, you know, a bit, a bit old school in a way. I'm very just like, you know, trying to, to, to play the notes the right way and, you know, maybe feel the harmonies and all that, but it's a very, it's very square. And, but actually 
some of the early things, like I, I remember listening to a recital I gave in Spain, I was like 13 or 14 um, playing Bach Chaconne. And you're, I'm surprised how, how much freedom and almost like naivete there is to it, like how much innocence there is to it, which is something that I actually look for now. Because, you know, with Bach, like you said, there's so much, ba so much baggage, right? And we have all these ideas and preconceptions and you know, so many recordings that you've listened to, performances yes, yes, that you've seen. It, it, it's just this, you know, big blob of, you know, and expectations of as well. I think because of that baggage, there are huge expectations on the part yes. of the audience that yep. the performer is doing something new, original, new, whatever, special, yeah, yeah. Fresh, whatever those yeah. terms really mean yeah. for an audience member. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you try, so at least now, what I've tried definitely with this album is, to, to really strip as much as I can those preconceptions and to just just let the music speak for itself. I mean, you listen, you know, one of my favorite recordings actually of Bach Chacon is um, uh, Kissens, uh, the, the Busoni version, which is, you know, it's a very different animal, but the way on modern piano, so, you know, it's very, very different than the way I played uh, Bach now, but there's just a certain almost purity to it where every note just, stands there and you know you only hear Bach even like he's trying really hard I feel to push Busoni to the side and like you know every note just sparks for itself and that's to me that's a sign of an amazing Bach performance where it's just you know he was so humble and so much not focused on himself that you're I, as a performer I try to kind of convey that and to just put myself as far away as possible and just let the music happen. Bach is the beginning of this album. There's lots of other music which is interspersed. Yes. Can you just give me um, an idea of how the concept for the album came about? Sure. Um, so I've been, since for quite a few years now, I've been really obsessed with uh, this idea of the connections that are made through history. I mean, just how much tradition and music from centuries ago still influences all the composers from today and you know through the 20th century and in the case of solo violin you know we have this kind of like you know the bible of solo violin right which is <laughs> the box sonatas and everything that comes after that especially once Bach kind of came you know became more well known and more played again in you know in the 20th century um yeah all of this music it's completely influenced by by those pieces you know so there's this direct connection something like Isai that's why you know I wanted to include the Isai second uh, sonata on it um, but also even the the Chrysler the Retrieval and Scherzo uh, there's there's a certain kind of clarity and also the whole polyphony idea that you know, Bach kind of brought to light that you know you can do these things with the violin that you can really make it sound so much more than just a melodic you know, melodic line like it was before. Um, yeah, so that's that's why I wanted to incorporate those. And then, on top of that, I am from I'm from Spain. Uh, I have a very very strong, I would say, Spanish identity, even if I've been in, in the U.S. for a long time, uh, for almost half my life now. Um, and so I wanted to also incorporate a bit of my my childhood memories and my. Uh, that the personal connection, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm very much when I play, there's uh, as part of the process that we were talking about earlier, there's there's a lot of this um, 
kind of influences of emotional memories, I call them, where I kind of, uh, I, I, pay, I kind of draw from my past and incorporate it into the music. And kind of that's how I, I'm able to connect much deeper to the music than I would if I'm just thinking at a more intellectual level. And so I felt that with these two pieces, with the Tariga and with the Abenis, uh, that was my way of paying tribute to that or kind of to that process of, of that I, you know, as a, as a violinist, that's like what I do with any piece. So how did you record my, my assumption is that you recorded it remotely because this is an Orchid Classics album. So it's, it's, uh, uh, so actually I went to Ingno. So the, the first, the actual album that, uh, you know, the, that uh, box on shallow in itself, I actually recorded it right before the pandemic on, uh, in England. Uh, I actually went to uh, Putnam Hall uh, over there and recorded with Patrick and uh, Jeremy Hayes, and which is an awesome experience. I, I had recorded with Patrick my first Patrick Allen, my first album, and uh, the the Four Seasons, the Richter, and so it was just you know it, it was great. They're, they're amazing. But then as the pandemic came, <clears throat> I uh, I wanted to you know we delayed the release and I wanted to kind of incorporate a little bit more of this. Of this connection, I guess, and this this idea between the old and new, and so we added um, the the kind of the EP, which you know it came out right before the album, uh, which is called we're calling it the Chacon Files. So which you know it's the Bach D minor, uh, the whole partita, including Chacon, and then this new piece um, by Joan Valen, who's a Mallorcan composer, uh, and he wrote it uh, inspired by. You know, it's also a Chacon and, you know, kind of inspire and pay tribute to Bach. Um, uh, something which may be slightly left field for you, yes, but uh, I figure that oh, you're yeah. here and I might as well ask. You are the second 30-year-old musician who I have sort of interacted with sure. this week. Um, and I see, in both, both of you, I see remarkable maturity in terms of thinking and... Um, being articulate and sort of Thank you. essentially sort of understanding what it is that you want to achieve and then going mm -hmm. ahead and doing it. I'm wondering where you think that comes from. Does that come from, is that a consequence of the discipline of music making or is it mm -hmm. something from the music that you have been drawn to? I think, yeah, I think actually music, the, the, the it's a combination. I think it's a combination of maybe a, a bit of an innate, um, curiosity or really like having my parents nurture me uh, about just being curious about the world and then my my almost primitive reaction to music like I, I love what I do <laughs> you know it's like almost like you can even through this pandemic which has been you know pretty terrifying as a musician <laughs> uh, uh, to kind of get through it um, and to not know you know when when you're going to have a job again <laughs> you know when you're able to actually do what you've been doing since you're a kid uh, again in front of people but there's just this excitement of discovering a piece and to really dig deep and dive into it and kind of you know i always the way i i call it is almost making it part of your life story where you really you you feel almost like you're you're swimming in it and uh, in order to get there it's a long process and it takes a lot of practicing the discipline that you talk about uh, it takes a lot of performing and being able to to share it with people and to learn from those experiences and it also takes a lot of living and 
experience in the world outside of you know or just the music and being able to incorporate that and uh that that experience is like once you go through that process and then you put it on a on a disc for example uh like with disc pieces it, there's nothing like it i mean it's it's just very it's very exciting and it's a very uh it's very intellectually challenging and rewarding at the same time uh it's it's also uh an uncommon experience. I mean, there are a lot of albums, there are a lot of musicians, yeah. but mm -hmm. actually in relation to the rest of the population of the world, it is yeah. not a common experience. So actually <laughs> that, that, that process of, of recording and then listening back, mm -hmm. is that, is that a discipline all in it? Oh, in that takes a lot itself? of discipline. It's, it's, uh, it's, I would say almost borderline, you know, it's very scary. I mean, listening, you know, because think about it, you're, you're putting all this work and <clears throat> you kind of, you know, schedule it in a way where you're leading up to this moment. And, you know, the recording itself, it's like a day, maybe a day and a half, a few sessions. And especially with solo violin recording, it feels you're just by yourself in this room and the engineer and the producer are sitting in the next room and you just have to deliver and you have to kind of, <clears throat> uh, yeah, like kind of have to match these expectations that you've built for yourself that you've put in all this work and you really feel like you want to make this as good as you can and you have to do it that day <laughs> not you know that's a, and that's a that's a very unique and yeah i would say scary process but when you listen back to it then you go all it's kind of like repeating those um those feelings those kind of mixed feelings all over again because you know you get the first edit from the uh, you know from the engineer and you're like just opening the file itself, it's like, it's an experience, <laughs> you know? It's like, I don't know, like someone uh, getting getting into law school or, you know, like opening the, the letter from a college to whether you get in or not, you know? It feels a bit like that. <clears throat> it's like, did I actually deliver or, or not? Or is this worth actually putting out there? But then there's also the question that arises, which is, <clears throat> are you the judge necessarily? Mm -hmm. I mean, I know technically, contractually, you are, <laughs> Because you're the artist, but yep. you know you you bring a. I, I could see, for example, that you that if one was tired, mm -hmm. uh, particularly ratty, uh, okay. and not very attentive as a result of yep. being tired, then then your your powers of judgment are going to way be way down. And no, way, and, indeed, yeah, yeah. So actually, having the producer—that's where the trick is. I mean, having a great producer makes all the difference because you especially when you're during the session itself, you go through this ups and downs, right? Like you start very excited, but kind of always everything sounds a little bit tight. You feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable and then you kind of settle into a rhythm into this kind of almost like hyper-focus mode where, you know, where things are flowing and you're getting through the piece or the next piece. And, but there are certain places or a certain spot in a piece or a certain piece itself, or even a whole piece, where you kind of get stuck and you need someone to pull you out of it in, in certain ways or and that you can really trust. So you actually need, I feel like the producer, in this case, Jeremy, was almost like the ultimate judge where, you know, where they're, you know, he's just there to, like, I really trust him. And I can, I can just focus on playing and listening to his feedback and, you know, playing it again and knowing that he'll like, you know, of course I can kind of tell when there's a really good take of something, but he's the really the ultimate decider when we move on. To the next piece and that's so that's a big filter and then 
for when you're listening back, when you're editing it, it's the same idea. If he's the one picking, you know, picking which which takes of the piece he likes and, you know, all these things. And then I listen and, you know, I would say 90, you know, 97% of what he sent me the first time was already amazing. You know, like it's exactly, like he really delivers on that, on that vision then that we work together during the sessions. Um, the, it's Isai, isn't it? Have I pronounced that correctly? Isai. Yeah, Isai. Yeah. Isai. Um, the first time I heard it was yeah. uh, hearing Jack Liebeck mm-hmm. record it in Henrywood Hall okay. uh, last summer. And it was at a point in time, it was the first, or maybe, no, maybe it's the second time I'd been to Henrywood Hall and heard okay. live music. It was just him on his own. Um, mm-hmm. I recognised that sort of, I mean, he looked he looked lonely, if you could be lonely, because everybody else was obviously uh, in another room. Um, I heard this at the SI as as manic and yeah. dark mm-hmm. and almost. I mean, it was it was fiery. Yeah. Uh, under Jack's fingers, um, mm-hmm. and and possibly because I hadn't really heard any live music for a long time, what felt okay. like a long time. It was just like, oh, my God, a sensory overload. I don't know where to look. But <laughs> awesome. um, is, is that how you approach it? Is that how yeah, it I mean, is? Think, yeah, it, it's interesting with his eye because, you know, he was, he was a re- revolutionary when it comes to violin playing. I mean, he really, I think it was um, Milstein who said, uh, he's the only, he's the first violinist to ever play in tune. <laughs> so... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. That you a lot. <laughs> there was just he really just took over the world of violin in that way, and just the, the precision and the virtuosity that he had was incredible, according to to everyone. And it was a different level than any of the big violinists at the time. And but by the time he wrote these pieces, he was already a bit uh, in the decline. He wasn't performing as much, and you know he actually wrote it for you know he wrote six of them one for each of his friends who are some of the most famous violinists of the next generation. And so to me, there's this, yeah, the, the kind of the manic, uh, neurotic kind of quality, darkness to it that is very extreme. And in my opinion, I think it might come a little bit from this frustration that, it, you know, that he was writing these pieces and really pushing the limits of violin playing yet maybe he wasn't able to play them in the way that he hoped for, that he had played before. So uh, there's a bit of like this depressive, dark, negative quality to it that I, you know, from all the reading and all the kind of trying, you know, understanding that I've done outside of my practicing and then doing, you know, when I'm learning his music, there's, to me, there's a lot of that where he's so focused on, pushing the violinist as far as possible and to be, yeah, you're really pushing you to the limit and be as extreme and as virtuosic as you can. Yet there's this hint of bitterness that, uh, that I can only explain might come from him just being frustrated that he couldn't, you know, play anymore. So this was his way of continuing his legacy of this virtuosic precision and intensity that he had as a violinist. Is it epic to play? Is it demanding to play? Yes. I mean, I think it's, you know, all six are, are pretty demanding uh, and they're very, they just, I think if you really want to, like, I think the way they work best um, is if you're really pushing them, like you can play them, you know, well, 
and in a more academic manner, I guess, in a more safe, in a bit of a safer manner. And they still sound good, but they really come to life when you know you're playing them a little bit faster. You're you're using you know a lot of the effects like the ponticellos and things like that to really really making it ponticello where it's almost you know like it makes you it makes you cringe and uh where the tempo changes and the rubados that you're using you know you go from like almost standstill to like this outburst uh that that's so very extreme very exaggerated do you mean? yeah like it is it is a bit you know you have to almost put yourself in this situation where you're losing control and you're just at the limit of where you can actually play it and you know the more you practice it and the more you you kind of work on it the more you can push it and i I think it makes a big difference when you can do that. It's presumably suited to those people who have lots of energy, presumably. <laughs> well, yes, I think, I think this might be true. <laughs>